Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and I wanted to continue in Lesson 3 of our series on Isaiah's Messiah, Exploring Isaiah 53. And so we're going to go into that today. Welcome and thank you for joining me. We've talked a little bit in the first couple of lessons about Isaiah basically starting at 52 verse 13 all the way through chapter 53. And we're looking at how this is somewhat of an oft ignored and oft overlooked chapter, sometimes misunderstood. And we've been seeing this section as Isaiah's prophetic word about the coming Messiah and that he knew him to be a suffering servant of the Lord. But he's giving us great details here that are very important, and we need to understand them. And so we see how these have connected to the Torah and how God's word is one whole book. And we have revelation here that we need to understand. So we looked at the latter part of chapter 52 in the first lesson. Then we looked at verse 1 of chapter 53 in the last lesson. Today we're going one more verse further into verse 2 of chapter 53. And so I believe that this will be a blessing to you. If you will stay with us till the end, you will understand much more. And I believe the Lord will speak to you. I'd like to begin by reading Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 2. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what has not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. I want to stop right here today and carry this forward so we understand more clearly more of these details because in this passage from Isaiah 52 verse 13 all the way through the end of chapter 53, Isaiah is going to tell us many details. And we have to understand that whoever the Messiah is, and we know him to be Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ. But whoever this Messiah is, according to the word of the Lord, he had to match and meet every single prophetic word that was included in the Tanakh, in the Torah, in the writings, in the law and the prophets, in every part of it. He had to match everything. And so here we have more details that this Messiah has to fulfill. So let's see what we find out. Here he says that this servant of the Lord, this is who 
Isaiah started speaking about in chapter 52, verse 13, and has continued speaking about all the way through. And so verse 2 helps us understand part of the questions that Isaiah raises in verse 1. We talked a little bit about that in the last episode, about how this news, this announcement that Isaiah is presenting is nearly unbelievable because who would have thought that God would come through this way? Who would have thought that the servant of the Lord would be a human being, would be in the flesh, come in the flesh, would be humble, and would have to suffer in this way? It's almost unbelievable, and, and Isaiah realizes that. And so under the inspiration of the Spirit of the living God, he writes those questions in verse 1. But verse 2 makes very clear to us that the coming servant of the Lord, the coming Messiah, will come in human form, and he will come humbly. So this verse tells us clearly about his humanity and his humility. He did not, nor was he going to come as some rich royal king according to the world's standards, as some may have been expecting. Maybe they were looking for the king, someone of the royal family, someone who would come with pomp and circumstance and be paraded through the kingdom with riches and glories according to the world. We do know that they expected him to come as king, and they were looking for their king to overthrow the Romans. But what they did not realize is that God, in his wisdom, which is unsearchable, it's such a vast ocean, he understands so much more than we do. God knew in his wisdom that we had a far worse enemy than the Romans. And this suffering servant, this Messiah, that Isaiah proclaims is going to come to destroy that enemy forever because that enemy will steal from us eternal life. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus came to bring eternal life. That far worse enemy than the Romans brings eternal death. So he understood he needed to come to destroy the greater enemy, not just give some temporary relief from Roman oppression. Never did the Jews expect this suffering servant to come in this way, this Messiah. Never did they expect him to come how he came. But as we will see today, it fits perfectly with Isaiah's prophetic word here of these details, and we'll see that throughout this entire study. Verse 2 especially brings this out very clearly about his humanity and his humility. Notice here first that there's an immediate connection with verse 1 where Isaiah ends that verse talking about the arm of the Lord being revealed. In the last episode, we looked at that in quite a bit of detail. We looked at the Zeruah, the arm of the Lord. 
And notice how here in Isaiah, when he connects to this arm of the Lord, he personifies him. He calls him a he. So Isaiah is telling us it can be and is to be interpreted as someone. He, the arm of the Lord, he is the one that shall come. And he says he's going to grow up as a tender plant before him. So we've got a he and we've got a him. One is going to be the one here that's growing up. The other is going to be the one that is overseeing that, is watching that. So he is the arm of the Lord personified. It's Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua, the Messiah. He shall grow up before him. Before who? Before God the Father, sitting on the throne. When it talks about him growing up as a tender plant, it's talking about him being raised up or reared up, trained up. It signifies the idea of a young sapling, tender plant, that has been planted or that has been germinated but not yet fully grown. It's, it's growing. It's young. It's tender. It's like a child of a parent. It also symbolizes that. A young child being reared up from infancy and childhood. As a child grows up, it's the same concept. And he says he will grow up before him or in the face of, in front of God the Father like a child, would grow up being watched and understood and seen by their parents. He says he will also be as a root. Now this is going to connect with another prophecy of Isaiah that we're going to spend some time on in this lesson. He says he's going to grow up as a root out of dry ground. A root is the base of a tree. It's what gives support permanence, firmness, and stability to that tree. So he's talking about what will stabilize and establish the entire plant. The shoot that will go deep and become sturdy in the ground as the base of the tree. It will give firmness, permanence, stability, and support for the full-grown tree. So he says he's coming as a root out of dry ground. He's coming forth from a time of dryness, desert or wilderness, aridity, a time where it is arid. Now this can signify to some degree the location. In Yeshua's case, he was coming from a little village in Nazareth. That's how he was going to grow up in a little village in Nazareth, in Galilee not from perhaps the beloved Jerusalem, the city you might expect the king of Israel to come from, or something like that. But I also believe that this may even signify time. In other words, he's going to come on the scene at the end of a dry season, at the end of an arid time, perhaps a time of seeming silence from God which in fact we see actually happen because we have what's called the intertestamental period. It just means the approximate 400 years of what some call silence. 
they were not silent. And God was still present in that time, and he was still moving. As a matter of fact, if you read in Daniel, you'll find out exactly what all the historical events were going to be during that time. And in fact, they did work out just that way. You had the Babylonian Empire that ends up coming, you know, breaking down. And then we have the, the Medes and the Persians and then the, the Greeks and then the Romans, etc. And so Daniel lays all of that out in his book. But during this 400 years, it was apparently a time of seeming silence. You had no official prophets after the post-exilic prophets like Malachi came on the scene until John the Baptist, who was going to be the forerunner to introduce Yeshua to the world as the Lamb of God who takes away sin. So it was this intertestamental period of time of about 400 years, which was in a sense considered a dry season. Spiritually, it was a parched or dry time in and among the people. There was a dry atmosphere. There was no divine word of the Lord for this time period from an official prophet like Daniel or Malachi or some of those were. So it was an arid time spiritually. But God had not forgotten his promise. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 tells us this says, in the fullness of the time. In other words, in God's perfect time. You know, it's like when you put a cake in the oven and you might set a timer for it to buzz after 30 minutes or 35 minutes or whatever it is. And, you know, it just tick, 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 ticks away until that perfect time. Until that time that has been predetermined. And then is the time for it to happen. And that's what he's talking about in Galatians chapter 4, 4. There was a perfect time that was set by God. And in that perfect time, Jesus comes on the scene. God sends Isaiah's Messiah on the stage of world history. Isaiah then tells us in this verse about his physical appearance. He says there'll be no form or no special features, no physique features, no nothing special about him. He's not going to be some tall, dark, and handsome dude. He's not going to be some mighty warrior type or some husky, muscular type. He's not going to be rich, ritzy, or royalty in a sense that we would expect. He is royalty, but he's not going to come in pomp and circumstance and ritziness of this world. He's not going to have any comeliness. There's not going to be any beauty, special features, or majestic appearance or atmosphere about him. In other words, he's going to come and be, and be like more of a common, ordinary man. Not anything physical that would set him apart or give him some special attention no confidence in his fleshly traits. He is the Lord's Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God, but he was not coming in such a way as to flaunt that or to bring glory to himself. He would not be known 
just by some appearance. He was going to be so common and ordinary that the average Jew would not even desire him. They would not take any special delight in him. They wouldn't covet him or his presence. He's not physically desirable because of any physical features or traits. He's not going to come in splendor or riches. He will come very humbly, very ordinarily, and be actually missed by many because he's not going to stand out in some fleshly way. And he will be coming in human form and in human flesh. This verse makes that very clear. This is part of why, perhaps, this report that Isaiah is bringing, this information, this news, could seem almost unbelievable, that the arm of the Lord would come in this way. But let's find out how true it is. I want to go now to Isaiah chapter 11, and I want to read verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So this is connecting with the fact that in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is telling us about this root from Jesse, this root from the descendants or the line of Jesse. And here again, he tells us more about this servant. He's going to be a rod from Jesse's stem. In other words, he's going to be tender and young, a twig, something gentle or fragile, a young branch from the trunk or stump of Jesse's tree. Remember, by the time that Jesus comes, years have gone by without a king from David's line sitting on the throne. So this stump of Jesse's tree is speaking of like a tree that's been cut down and only the stump remains. But the stump will produce the Messiah in time to come because God promised it. He will grow up like a branch. He will be a branch. It's a branch 
growing out of his roots. It's interesting because the Hebrew word for branch is netzer or netzar. And it means a shoot or a sprout or a branch. But interesting, it's also the root from which the word Nazareth comes or Nazareth, which is named for branch. We also see in another place in the scripture where the Messiah was to be called a Nazarene, Nazareth. In other words, he was going to be one that would come from Nazareth, from the branch. He was the branch, the Netzar. Some even connect this with Samson, who is considered to be a type of Christ in some ways. And that word is found in Judges chapter 13, verse 5. But in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, it makes very clear that Jesus, the Messiah, was also going to be known to be a Nazarene or one from Nazareth, which Jesus fulfills. And he's one of Jesse's descendants. And it says that this branch is going to grow or increase and bear fruit from Jesse's roots. Exactly what Isaiah 53 tells us. Same root, same shoot. Praise be to God. He or this one, this anointed one, this Messiah that Isaiah has prophesied about in Isaiah 53 and in Isaiah 11 here, is going to be anointed of the Holy Spirit of the living God. And we're given the sevenfold fullness description of the Spirit of God in verse 2 here. You can find that connecting with Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 4 and 5 and so on. He's going to fear God. He's going to judge rightly and execute justice, righteousness, and mercy. Also in Isaiah 11 here, Isaiah is given the prophetic word about this Messiah in both his first and his second coming. Because he tells us here about his second coming when he's going to strike the earth, destroy the wicked, establish his kingdom, rule righteously, bring peace, even between humans and the animal kingdom. He's going to fill the earth with God's knowledge and glory and stand as a banner, even inviting to Gentiles who will come. It's the same root of Jesse from Isaiah 53, verse 2, and Isaiah 11 here, verse 1 and verse 10. The whole context in this passage is the root of Jesse from his youth forward. Why Jesse? We find the answer in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. And it says this, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. So the reason it's Jesse's root is because it was going to be one of Jesse's sons that was God's chosen king. And if you keep reading in that chapter, you find out it's David. As a matter of fact, let's scoot down to verse 10 and read verse 10 through 13. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, 
Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good-looking, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So here we see God choosing David, the son of Jesse, to be the next king of Israel after Saul. So it was a root of Jesse. Then we understand that the Messiah himself is later going to come from David, which came from Jesse. So this is why he's the root of Jesse. Even after a long time of David having no one sitting on his throne, the promised son of David, who would rule and reign on David's throne in coming days, is told to Isaiah, and he is called the root of Jesse. So we see the covenant promise given to David directly as well. I want us to look at Second Samuel. In Second Samuel chapter 7, the first few verses, we see David wanting to build God a big, beautiful house. He says, in essence, I've got the Ark of the Covenant here and I've made a tent for it, but I'm living in a beautiful palace. I'm living in a wonderful place and God's under a tent. There's something really wrong with this picture. I want him to have this gorgeous, beautiful home because he's worthy of it. And so Nathan the prophet at first says, boy, that sounds like a great idea. Go for it, David. Do everything you want to do. Verse four, beginning in verse four, it says this. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So David is given a direct covenant promise here from God. And it has a, both a near and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment would be the next son of David that would rule as king, who was Solomon. And the far fulfillment it speaks about is Jesus. Jesus is the one. The Messiah is the coming one that will have the everlasting kingdom, the eternal kingdom. Throughout the Old Testament, you have prophecies about Messiah that is to come being the son of David. And the Jews know that. And you'll find out in the New Testament, especially Matthew gives elaborate proof of this throughout his gospel. In beginning even in chapter 1 and forward. In chapter 1, he establishes that Yeshua, the Messiah, is in fact a son of Abraham and a son of David. We're given two genealogies of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 3. And both of those together are proof positive that Jesus is in fact the son of Abraham and the son of David, the coming king of Israel. Zechariah also prophesied about this too in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And we see that actually fulfilled on what we call Palm Sunday, when he made his entry into Jerusalem and was presented and recognized by the people with the messianic cry, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is found, that prophetic word was found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, fulfilled by Yeshua the Messiah. In Genesis 3.15, all the way back to Eden, there was the prophetic word for the coming Messiah, that he would be of the seed of the woman, which means he would be miraculously birthed miraculously conceived. The woman does not carry the seed, but God said he would be born of a virgin, even in that statement. Then we see in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 and 15, it's made very clear there that it will be the seed of the woman. It will be a virgin's son. She will conceive and bear a son, meaning he will also have humanity. He will take upon himself Humanity. He is 100% human and 100% God. He takes upon himself humanity. He will be divinely conceived by the Holy Spirit. And we find that in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 1. He will be called Emmanuel, God with us. God who came down in the flesh to be with us. We're told in Isaiah 7, 14 and 15, curds and whey he would eat, curds and honey, meaning he's going to be raised up in childhood. And we're told about how he's going to eat human food, human 
He'll have a human diet. And through that, he's going to be taught and trained. He's called even a child here in this passage. Then we see in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, where Isaiah get, gets into some of the names that he will be called. And the very first thing he tells us is that he is the child and the son. And that person will then grow to become the king of all the earth in an everlasting kingdom. And then in Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, we saw how he is also the branch and the root. These are all talking about Messiah. We also find Daniel speaking about him being the coming king. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, he says this, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So Daniel verifies that this coming one will be king. He is the son of man, the son of David, the son of the living God. But he also is coming in flesh and has taken upon himself humanity. He is 100% human, 100% God in the flesh, God the Son. He took upon himself human flesh by humbling himself. And Paul writes about that in the book of Philippians in chapter 2. And I want to begin the reading in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Sounds similar to what Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, verse 2. There's no comeliness, nothing we can desire about him. So verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then he talks about how God exalts him because of that. So he came, humbled himself, and added humanity to himself. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 also says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered this is also speaking about Messiah. He was born to a poor and obscure family. Someone perhaps even unknown in most men's eyes. Now Joseph was a carpenter, so perhaps he was well known and had a good reputation for his business. But in the grand scheme of the world stage, Joseph and Mary were fairly unknown. They were a poor family. Some may discount that. But we have the proof of that with their offering. They gave the poor offering at Mary's purification. You can find all of that in the Torah, exactly as the Torah demanded. And it's recorded for us in Luke chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, also fulfilling other prophetic words. In Micah chapter 4, verse 8, 
and particularly in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Note in Micah 5, 2. Let's read that one because it says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So not only does Micah tell us here that this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Ephratah, but he's also going to be the one who is going to be the ruler of Israel. Not only that, that his origins or his goings forth are from everlasting. In other words, he had no beginning. That speaks of only God himself. Even here in Micah 5, 2, we see that Micah is telling us that it will be the Son of God come in the flesh. He is going to be the Messiah. We see in his early life he had to escape to Egypt, fulfilling Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, and Hosea 11, 1, when Messiah was then called out of Egypt, God's own son. He says, I called my son out of Egypt. Israel was called out of Egypt as a type of the Lord, but God's son was also called out of Egypt, and we find that to be true in Matthew and Luke's recordings of his early life. We see his childhood was mostly obscure from that point forward, as he grew up in Nazareth. But I want us to read Hebrews chapter 5 again, and I'm going to read verses 5 through 10 this time. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So here he tells us more about him as a child growing up, being reared up, but he is the son of God and he became the author of eternal salvation. We know that when he grew up, he was known by those in Galilee as Joseph's son. And there was nothing special about that because we even have one of the disciples, when he was called, he asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? We only see Jesus as a child again at 12 years old. And there we see him honoring God by honoring God's law, the Torah, and preparing for even perhaps his bar mitzvah. And he was training and with the elders of Israel, with the rabbis and the scholars. So this reveals to us his training and his rearing, as well as his honor of scripture. And so he was reared up and grown up 
and burst onto the scene in official ministry at 30 years of age. So yes, Isaiah's prophecy can be hard to embrace because of its incredible nature with these magnificent details, but it is still true and proven and supported by many witnesses throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New, both in the Tanakh and the Berit Kadashah. Isaiah's Messiah comes on the scene as a human being, God in the flesh with us, of humble origins and beginnings, without any special features or traits that would make us long for him. But he is God's choice, just like David was God's choice among Jesse's sons. In God's wisdom, the Messiah would come to be one of us as the arm of the Lord who came to redeem us. So he became a kinsman redeemer. Now the kinsman redeemer is more than what we have time to get into in this episode. I would encourage you to read the book of Ruth. And I do have a message around Passover time. I think it's one of the Passover passion messages where I get into the Goel, the kinsman redeemer and the beauty of redemption. But in essence, the kinsman redeemer, there were three requirements. First and foremost, he had to actually be a kinsman. He had to be a part of the family. He had to be in the same family in a near relationship. Jesus came in the flesh, making that first qualification a reality. So he became a near kinsman by being born of the virgin, God the Son, in the flesh. The other two requirements for the kinsman redeemer was that this person had to be able to redeem. He had to have the ability, the financial means, the ability legally to redeem. Jesus was able to redeem. And then thirdly, he had to be willing to do it. He had to have the desire to do it. And Jesus came in the flesh to save us. I'd like to close us out by looking at two final passages. One is found in Hebrews chapter 2, and I want to read verses 10 through 18. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, it says this, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, that is, the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, 
for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So Jesus came to redeem us. He came in the flesh to be one of us so that he could die in our place. The question now is, who do you say that he is? Do you accept Isaiah's Messiah as he tells us who he is in Isaiah chapter 53? Do you recognize that he is the root of Jesse, that he is the Son of God come in the flesh? The question that he poses to his disciples is the very same question that every individual must answer correctly as Peter does in order to be able to have eternal life. I want to close with this passage, Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 through 18. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Doesn't matter who other people say he is. Who do you say Jesus is? That's the question you must raffle. That's the question you must answer. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the one Isaiah prophesied about, the one Daniel prophesied about, the one Moses prophesied about, the one Zechariah prophesied about, the one Micah prophesied about. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that, on, that you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of revelation he was talking about, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Can you say what Peter said? It is true. He is God in the flesh. John testifies about that also in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. Isaiah's Messiah is the arm of the Lord that came to redeem us, and he came in human form, humbly, so he could be our kinsman redeemer in our place. Praise be to God. I pray that you know him as your own personal Lord and Savior. I pray that you can answer that question just like Peter did. I pray that this has been a blessing to you, and Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Isaiah's Messiah, brought to you from Covenant Truth Ministries. God bless you today, in Jesus' name. Amen.